Welcome back to Reformed Millennials, the podcast where finances, economic trends, and sports intersect. Cam and Joel help listeners better invest their time and money. Also, it's important for listeners to understand that investing in equities, fixed income instruments, and or alternative asset classes involves substantial risk of loss. Any action you may take as a result of the information presented in this podcast is your own responsibility. The information in this podcast is presented as a general educational, informational, and entertainment resource only. While Joel is registered to provide investment advice, this podcast does not provide individualized investment, tax, or insurance advice, nor is it meant as a recommendation to any listener to buy or sell any specific securities or otherwise take any other form of investment action. This is an excerpt of the full legal disclaimer that's available on the landing page of this podcast, which includes whether Cam Pitchers or Joel Shackleton have any ownership or interest in the specific securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome back back from Cali. Yes. Cali, Joel. I'm happy to be back. I got a small tan in my five <laughs> days there. Uh, great to be back. I'm Why? Were you happy. on the golf course or something? No, I didn't get to golf. <laughs> I, I was mostly there for work. <clears throat> Just hanging out at Disney. Yeah. yeah. Which was a fantastic experience with a three-year-old. What's your um, in a vacuum uh, assessment of the economy based off being in the happiest place on earth. Boom it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with that said, um, last night I went for this like community di- uh, drinks, and so everybody in the like where I live yep. goes for drinks first Thursday of every every month. And um, there's a guy next to me who is a Disney fanatic. Oh, okay. And I had told him like, yeah, I took my my son to Disney for the first time, and he's like, Disneyland or World. Ooh. And I was like, land. And he's like, well, it's kind of it's kind of the, the dumpster of Disney. <laughs> I'm like, no, it can't be. It's the original. He's like, no, actually, the the true vision for Walt Disney was Disney World. Mm. And and he went to a state with no regulation to get right, that done. Of course. So he went, bought all this land in a swamp, built heaven on earth for children, and now, yeah, um, he he said that there's this big discrepancy between the two. Anyways. Um, my I think that is, I've heard the same thing. I've never been to either. I mean, I'm definitely in the minority. I've never, as a kid, never got... I don't think that's the minority. I don't think the majority of people have been to Disney anything. Well, but I think kids in general of our ilk, like that was like, I feel like a ton, at least if within our group sure of... Sure, park. park. Yeah, sure. so again, but it's still like high on the list of like, this is something that we're going to do. Like Certainly. The, I agree. And it was never something for me. So, and I wasn't even a huge Disney fan. So I have a tough time understanding the true, like how big it is in, in either someone's like memory bank in terms of this was an amazing trip for me or what it's like even going today. So the stuff that I take from it, the detail of the entire park is Mm. unbelievable. Yeah. Not a single stone out of place, not a light that isn't in perfect working order. It's like Augusta. It's Augusta for children. It's unbelievable. Um, number two, prices weren't as crazy as I thought. Mm. I was expecting a hundred bucks to go for lunch, and right. it wasn't. It just isn't. The the Buzz after Lightyear, you converted it was yeah. After you convert Canadian pesos to to American dollars, it was quite bad. But um, the overall experience was a lot of fun. Um, free for any kid under three. Okay. Did you know fifty one thousand people go through Disneyland every single day? 
That doesn't surprise me, but And when you do crazy. the math on how much they charge per vehicle for parking, they're bringing in over 500000 a day in revenue, which is not too shab considering it's, you're not even in yet. Um, it is a great, it's a great time, but I, uh, you know what? I could see why people go there and like, oh, I got to buy Disney stock. And then you look at the performance you're so impressed of Disney. By that. Yeah, yeah. And then you look yeah. at the performance of Disney and you're like, how is this possible? That park is printing money. What a lesson in poor opportunity to reinvest your, 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 your earnings and not doing it the right way. Because if Disney were smart, they would spin out the parks and then have their, their Disney media arm where they're trying to attack sports and, and streaming and have the parks separate because the parks are unbelievable assets. That some, benefit. Succe- some succession ideas right, here. Exactly. Yeah. Anyways, um, I don't think there's any Walt Disney family members that still have a ton of a con- of control over the actual business. So it doesn't really matter. Well, on the, the topic of, uh, we were just talking before you started recording about, you know, focusing on media, spinning out media and focusing on new properties to have. I think the biggest news from a streaming platform for the most part in the last couple of weeks that we haven't talked about yet is the WWE deal with Netflix. So there was some unfortunate news, which he is already kind of in hot water before all of this. And now it's come back up and he stepped down. Vince McMahon's got some sexual assault deals to worry about but the the property of wwe and netflix come together coming together on a five-year i think five billion dollar streaming deal with i think you said the option for netflix just to kind of cut it after cut it after five years and i'd be interested to know if there's any opt-outs on the way but in relation to it i think it just makes so much sense like what a great property like we've already seen them align themselves with can you see the the bifurcation of which sports are going where yet Oh, totally. Well, but, but even like for them from their risk profile perspective, like going in, I'm sure like the fact that they've been highlighting F1, golf, tennis, you know, maybe some extreme sports stuff too, as well. It's lower risk in terms of probably what their upfront commitment needs to be. Like, I mean, 5 billion for WWE is huge, but that's like, this is like their first into first step into something that is, um, that product or what wrestling represents, like think about that. It's been a part of our entire lives. Like we're turning 34 here pretty soon. Mm -hmm. I remember being like vividly at five and six and seven years old, like wrestling being on, like we weren't a wrestling family, but it was on it was, and it's always been a part. And like, I remember thinking at 13, 14, 15, when you realize, Oh, this is fake that this is going to die. Like eventually as more information comes out, it's like, no, people love their entertainment. We were talking about what's more fake. What's on the fake level? If, if, if you were to yeah, index give me your fake at 100. Index fake at 100, yeah. Um, which one is more fake? Selling Sunset and those people actually selling hosts? <laughs> or the fact that John Cena has actually won that many world titles? <laughs> I mean, they're both scripted, no doubt. B- exactly. And, and so the fact that we just accept now that we, you know, you can have your own personal opinion that I hate all of that kind of stuff, which is fair, but... There's obviously way, way There's too many people to do. There's a ton of value in it, for and, sure. And what a great way for the WWE to... Because I, I think, again, following it loosely and like seeing, obviously, just from the business sense of what's happened over the last, call it, decade, they've definitely been playing around with how they've been putting out their content. Like, they, you know, have their own dedicated channel that you could subscribe to, I believe, through like TELUS and Rogers, and then obviously doing their own content through the regular media 
mediums that we always talk about and then obviously still being on you know the smackdown and the raws and whatever else every single week like i mean it is something that's very much a um the production is in your face all the time like there's not like they do have events like 12 events maybe like summer slam or they have Royal Rumble or events that bring in a ton of people. But what it really does is it brings in another cohort of people that are. It's going to justify um, reducing the churn of your monthly membership with with Netflix and paying up for the high higher higher end version. And that is what they're doing. They're spending five billion dollars to reduce churn and increase price and keep people inside of the Netflix um, subscription family. And that is brilliant. That's why sports live sports like the NBA, the NHL, the NFL, to a lesser extent, are much more of a, um, a plot, the platform that they're likely going to go to is gonna be more um, diversified. And I think that's why Prime makes a lot more sense than them, where they might, they might team up with a cable provider, et cetera. Yeah, it's yeah. not gonna make sense for, for Netflix to go after that because that's just not the model that they're going for, right? So yeah, when you have a time, season yeah. that's only six months long, people are gonna cancel. Yeah. Whereas Netflix is looking for that entity that is year round. Mm -hmm. I mean, golf is kind of year round. It kind of is a little bit longer season. And the other thing too, is if you have your shows that you're producing as well in relation to that sport, then that can be your cover during the off season as well. So the off season for the NFL is super long and the NBA and the NHL. Well, the, NF- the NFL might as well just have their own streaming network and like <laughs> yeah. people, everyone would subscribe to yeah. that and you'd be all yeah, good. So right. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Jazz and whatever. So I don't know, honestly, brilliant move by them. You saw it in stock price. It did fantastic after breaking that news. Um, I mean, of the big seven, the only business that's actually struggling right now is while well, Google along with poor old Apple, <laughs> the king, the king. Um, I mean, to me, it feels as though they're going into that 2014 period where they're trying to find themselves again, mm-hmm. that next level up in terms of revenue growth driving. And the like, if, if you go back and put your shoes, put yourself in the shoes of 2014, you have like the topping out of the iPhone sales mm-hmm. um, services for those that don't necessarily know what that is. We're talking iTunes or people paying for. Um, storage and that sort of thing. Yep. And you mean that email driven. I get every yeah, exactly. couple weeks? Yeah. <laughs> um, that hasn't really been established yet at this point. The the AirPods weren't quite out yet. Um, the, the watch is just starting to gain traction. Yep. And you're in this, this lull period where they haven't seen a lot of innovation and then the stock goes down and, and trades to eight times earnings. I'm not suggesting that Apple belongs there right now because it doesn't. Because back then they were a hardware company. Now they're very much both hardware and services, which, which justifies larger margins and higher multiple. But what you're seeing in the market, and if you look at the big Magnificent Seven, you have five of the seven, well, no, four of the seven that are doing really well right now. Yeah. You have Meta that just had the most insane quarter that I've seen since following the stock since literally the beginning. Um, you have Amazon that had an absolute blowout quarter. You have Microsoft that continues to trade really, really well. It's the world's most valuable business. It has a great growth story in artificial intelligence, open AI, and Copilot. And then you've got Apple that just doesn't have that right now. And when you look at the Vision Pro and you, you, you start to follow along with the, the storyline there, and you're just like, how is this going to make money? You have a $3,500 
hardware device that is inarguably difficult to, to comprehend and afford for the majority of families. Yeah. But that is where they, they, they tend to um, do well. They, this is something that's going to take a little bit of time for people to digest, integrate into their lives, and actually right. utilize. You had, before we, we started recording today, you talked about how you'd asked uh, your wife if she would talk to you if you were wearing those, <laughs> if you're sitting on the couch watching television with them. Yeah. And she was, she seemed to say no. Well, it's just, it's the thing where we're now finding ourselves in our generation to be, you know, who our parents were. At yeah, we're way the, too old. Right? And it's just really hard to think about that what that new normal will look like. So when we're 55 and there's going to be people, obviously right now it looks like, so we were talking about Marquise Brownlee's um, YouTube review of, he, he's kind of doing two. So for those who do follow him quite closely, like he's doing kind of a more commercial review and then a very, like a more technical review after. So I think the commercial review is kind of like, what's cool? Where could this go? What's not great? That kind of thing um, for your average user. And I think just thinking about people walking around with the battery pack in their back pocket with <laughs> the loop up to their head, like it's kind of like, okay, well now people were, people were probably making fun of, you know, when you first put your disc man in your pocket and had your wires like for your headphones up to your head. So it's all like, it's all relative at the end of the day, but it is, it is quite the, it is, it is quite the difference from a wearable tech standpoint as compared to what we're used to. So there is some shock value just in relation to what it looks like. And you can tell that Apple is trying to rebrand the this space and they're probably totally going to win again. They, that was one thing I found really interesting is that he's like, this is like the best VR headset you've ever put on. Like that, that was his first description of it. But he's like, you will never hear Apple say this is a VR headset. No, they're going to say spatial computing. Yeah. And that's them again, redefining a space where people were like, ah, oh, we have this wrist tech and your AirPods, and people were not calling it wearables at that point. Yeah. Apple started calling it wearables. And now everyone calls that stuff wearables. And I can see the, this absolutely happening again. And that just speaks to the demand for Apple and just their brand in anything related to technology and hardware. And I think that that um, just reiterates the fact that they aren't going to likely lose this space. Um, however, I do question whether or not they're going to be able to justify their multiple for a little bit. And this is where, from an investing perspective, you start to have to make decisions around, okay, is now the time to make, make this, uh, this investment? You can, you can draw some similarities to Facebook and Meta and two and a half years ago. When they had really pressed forward, they changed their name from Facebook to Meta. Mm -hmm. They really jumped into AI and VR, AR, the metaverse. And that took the stock from 370 to 78 or 88 or whatever. That is a destruction of value that is unheard of. They've been burning, I think, at, uh, up to this past quarter, $42 billion on the metaverse, whether that be via Oculus and, and the development out of the, the OS and their their AI and the glasses, yeah, and their glasses, <laughs> their their VR headset, um, the Oculus Three, the or the is it Oculus? Anyways, I don't know, matter. like the actual like wearable ones yeah, yeah, yeah. that you can talk to. Yeah, yeah. and oh, they're glasses. Yeah, yeah like yeah. the legit glasses. The, yeah, the Ray Ban glasses. Yeah, which are <laughs> flying off the shelves, by the way. Yeah, which is pretty crazy. cool. Yeah, and 
you had this transition where they had to get lean. There was this, they had to, they've reduced their head count by 25%. Um, and they had to finally start to, to re, re-engage. And you know what? A whole bunch of things happened that benefited Facebook in that time frame. You had OpenAI that released its, its first GPT model where people started to get really excited about what the possibilities were with, with language models and, and AI, how powerful it actually was. That probably saved the market in 2022, 2023. That benefits Meta and, and Facebook. You then start to look at the fact that the economy isn't slowing down, that advertising is more in demand than it was before, the fact that Reels is is eating away at TikTok's relevance with a certain cohort of people. You have WhatsApp that's growing like mad. You have shop ads that is doing even better than they ever could have imagined. You have 130 million monthly active users with threads. And you look at a business that is got 4 billion users which is, if people don't understand, that's half the planet. And you have what you, if you look at the, the individual segments. That's like revenue, unique users. I, that's yeah. across their entire family. Yeah, okay, fair enough, but still, that's crazy number. just yeah. on Facebook, right? I think unique users on Facebook is two, a little over two. That's still amazing. Yeah. yeah, it is, it's unbelievable. And WhatsApp itself is finally starting to monetize and grow. Mm-hmm. It's got 500 million monthly active users. They, are, they even have cam pictures using it sometimes, yeah, which exactly. is pretty amazing. I, I I find myself involved in, I don't know, 10 group chats on WhatsApp, and that's where most of my conversation has gone, which is, I don't think that speaks to Android doing well. I think it just speaks to the, the user experience there, and yeah. people like it. Mm-hmm. So there's something to be said about that. Either way, when you when you look at kind of the transition as an investor, and you think, okay, I've been with Apple forever, Get prepared for there being some tough quarters as they start to kind of downshift and then try to find themselves um, a new revenue driver. And app, Facebook had to do this, and you had to go through an 80% drawdown in that stock. It's now up 430% since then. However, pretty tough to, to stomach. I do not suggest that that's going to happen to Apple. I'm just saying that there will be a downshift here. I do think that they need to find their place with the Vision Pro. They need to figure out a new spot for them to make a little bit of money. There is a little bit of a headwind with all of these companies where they're not able to actually acquire businesses anymore because of the antitrust scrutiny. So over the next year, I do think that there's there's going to be some problems there. And you can see it with, with Google and with Apple. Um, and it's less of a problem for the other three that have done particularly well in the NVIDIA, Facebook, and, and Amazon. Well, I think this is another example. I know you've said this to me before a long time ago, um, and I'm sure it's more it's a classic adage probably in your space, but, I mean, the, the bet, I guess, that you're the investment that you made in Meta, if you did two years ago, saying watching it drop from 370 to 70 or whatever it was, I believe in the company. I believe in the founder. I believe in the vision. I've held it for that long. I think they're going to rebound if they are if they are taking if they are consciously making the decision because like they it's not like they're sitting in a boardroom not knowing that we're going to tank as a result of changing mm-hmm. what we're focusing our energy on and what we're pouring our money into and where we see ourselves going in two years. So I think same kind of even apply that same kind of rationale to Apple. It's like well. I mean, what does history tell us? History tells us, at least in the new age of what Apple has represented in our lives, that you don't bet against them. No. <laughs> right? No. So it's like, okay, well, am I going to shift 
60% of my portfolio into making these kind of bets? Like obviously oh. not. Right. But I mean, it's just like one of those things where it's like people, it's really, we live in this, the 24 hour news cycle yeah. age now. So all we're going to see is memes of, I don't know, you said about three to me yesterday uh, <laughs> showing how Apple sucks. Right. And that's what just people are, people are posting those things in the here and now. Wait, does and anyone not, remember the pictures of Mark Zuckerberg? Exactly. With his teeth knocked out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's why, I'm, but that's the, like you, it's, you quickly forget. Uh, and I mean, that, that's not just indicative of our generation or of the meme generation. That's always how it is. Is why have you done for me lately? Right. Yeah. But again, as a investor and looking at this from the, the standpoint of, well, I mean, Apple's probably sitting around in a boardroom saying, okay, like we know that we're going to get kicked in the teeth for a little while here. We've had Microsoft pass us in terms of uh, market. market cap. We've had all these things happen that we were doing to other companies 10 years ago or on the cusp of doing 10 years ago. And I'm assuming they probably have a lot of thoughts about where they're going to be in, you know, by 2030 and what that's going to look like. And where do we need to start focusing? We, we can't keep doing what we're doing and keep growing. So I mean, yeah, I would be hard pressed to think that I'm, um, if I saw Apple fall, like me, this is me, just my personal feeling. If, if I saw Apple fall 200%, mm -hmm. it's like, I'd be like, mm, I'm probably going to buy some of that. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, um, yeah, it'll be, it will be very interesting to see this new age. Cause obviously, yes, the vision pro is their new hot product. And from, yeah, I gotta, I gotta read this, this, this quip from David Pierce of the verb. I'm an intense viewer of sports and I can't believe how I can be courtside with this device or the front rows of big football or baseball game. I saw a soccer match on the Vision Pro and I ducked when a ball came right at me. Courtside playoff tickets to the New York Knicks cost $30,000. I would have had better seats with the Vision Pro. If Apple can work out a deal with the NBA commissioner, Adam Silver, there's gonna be an enormous amount of opportunity here. But the best thing would be the NFL and football. I can envision a world where I can put on four or five red zone screens up at once see all my favorite players on all the side, the sidelines. Mm -hmm. My Mad Money Fantasy League will finally be a reality inside my Vision Pro. And when you think about it from that perspective, you're, and the amount of people that love sports in America and just across the world in general, a $3,500 ticket for Vision Pro to sit and watch on Sundays makes a lot of sense. Also, and the fact that you're not going to have to have multiple, like, Think about just TV purchases, like what that's going to do for oh, this, right? Like, and that's I mean, another interesting dynamic to all of this is mm -hmm. like, what happens to the 75-inch TV? And this was a big topic of, dis of discussion between different generations, where mm -hmm. our generation, like imagine going to Justin Markey and being like, you're not going to own a TV ever. <laughs> he's be like, nope. I mean, he rejected online shopping. You think he's going to move over to this? There's no way, right? And that, that holds true for me too, and for you probably. Yeah, yeah. The idea of wearing this this headset on my couch when I'm in, no, yeah, right? It, like it, it seems so foreign, but it's like no different. But than you go and you talk to Gen A and Gen Z, they're going to be like, I've been sitting in, with a headset playing video games for the last 20 years of my life. You think yeah. I won't wear this thing? I can't wear to wear this. Yeah, I can't, I can't wait to not have to hold this. Exactly. So <laughs> quite honestly, I wouldn't push back so soon. No, um, for sure. It's going to be a 10 year thing. I think it's good. That's going to what's the true revolutionary part of this is the 
as unfortunate it is, it's like you say, oh, a bunch of people sitting on their butts on couches, like with these things on. It's like, we're doing that anyways. We're just watching. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> TV. What's the difference? What's the difference, right? So it's just the optics of it. So, I mean, at the end of the day, yes, there's gonna, that's going to be the way we consume that type of entertainment, I think, will be the most revolutionary. I don't want five screens. I just want my Twitter feed. Yeah. Well, I mean, that the, the best thing, like, again, I'm thinking here, like what we do, you've talked about this a thousand times. You're watching a live event. Half of what your entertainment value is, is on your group chat, talking yeah. about what you're watching. Um, obviously, from a sports perspective, okay, you have your betting app open probably, right? You're following it on Twitter or Instagram or whatever it is. It's like, again, thinking about the entertainment factor of it. Again, boom, on your screen, you have everything live in front of you. All you're doing is pinching and touching. And like, I mean, what an amazing user experience, I would think. I do think it's going to bring um, a better experience for more people than because the majority of in-person games have been relegated to the 1% of the 1%. And that is... Which will scale that down. Exactly, which yeah. is great. Yeah. So it because as soon as, they, the sports. as soon as they can get um, an agreement in place between you know these providers and the leagues to say, like, yeah, we can actually get you in there. Like, you have to be a millionaire to do a paddock walk. And that's not even an exaggeration. Yeah. It's insane. So I'm, I'm optimistic about it. I want to kind of shift into a macro take here because while all of these big seven businesses have had pretty phenomenal quarters, um, with the exception of Tesla, I am starting to believe the next six weeks we're going to see a little bit of rollover here. Um, jobs that out this morning was hot in the U.S., so hot that... The market is already selling off because of it. And that combined with Apple, which is a huge proponent of, of the index, and you're going to likely see a, down, a shift. And right now you can see consumer staples, the US dollar, very, very strong. What does that generally mean? That means that multiples are gonna come down and you're gonna see a digestion of the last, call it, three months since October. And I, I see it coming, four to 5% correction would not surprise me one bit at all. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Historically, February is one of the worst months to invest. And, you know, buy in May and go away is probably likely true. I, I'm not, <laughs> that's not financial advice. Um, always be watching and listening to this podcast because I can change my If your financial advice is based off of a Dr. Seuss rhyme, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Find a new advisor. Uh, <clears throat> and I'm a great Seuss rhymer. The, the, um, when, I, when I'm paying, what I'm paying attention to right now is the U.S. dollar again. And when you listen to Powell on Thursday, or yes, sorry, Wednesday, he took the cut off the table in March, mm -hmm. and that's because the economy is so strong. I think that it's likely being pushed back to Q4 at this point. That can be reassessed if we learned anything through 2022 and 2023. It's that these things change rapidly, especially when you have new data coming out saying that uh, the economy is stronger than we anticipated. and. Mm -hmm there's no reason why they won't continue to hold strong here. I'm not, it doesn't seem like they're putting increases on the table yet, but if we see any more strength in GDP and in job numbers, I could see them adding rather than subtracting. So mm -hmm. with all that said, if inflation stays tight at three plus, we're in trouble. So they have to keep at five plus. If inflation can get down into the twos, they will cut. Mm -hmm. So that's what people should be paying attention to. For those that are a little bit more concerned about the, how this impacts real estate, which I think is a large portion of those that listen to this podcast, at least 
the conversations I have off mic off camera with those that listen slash know me personally and they want to have conversations it's almost always about rates and housing and how it influences things yeah and when it comes to housing in this country it's it's pretty clear that we're going to have a come to to jesus moment in in the summer Mm -hmm. we have a lot of five-year fix coming off and they need to refinance Yep. And I know plenty of people that are in this this place, you across the table, and affordability for the large majority of Canadians is going to be come into question. And if we don't see a policy change or if we don't actually get rate cuts, I could see there being a lot of housing supply come on the market and that start to really change the dynamic. That could send pricing into a tailspin mm-hmm. and a rush to sell. I I don't want to sound like an alarmist here because I don't believe that that will come to fruition. Mm-hmm. But that is the likely, um, we'll call it domino effect of no rate cuts. People are refinancing. A lot of people prefer to go with a fixed mortgage. Now they're financing at five when they had a two. And now the cost of their mortgage has now gone up 60, 70%, in some cases doubled and they're no longer paying principal down yep. and the dynamics of their finances are have completely flipped upside down mm-hmm. they've gone from saving a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars a month to now losing fifteen hundred dollars a month and they're starting to conser- be concerned mm-hmm. so i think a lot of people should be having conversations with themselves their family members to see okay where are we at yeah. can we afford this increase in interest costs on our home mm-hmm. can we afford that new car can we afford these things mm-hmm. because if you don't get that figured out before you're going to have wished you listed your house so that you could find something new mm-hmm. and if you do it when it's too late you're going to find yourself in a position where everybody else is doing it too and when there's a rush to the gate to sell, that's when prices spiral, yeah. right? And I'm not suggesting that's gonna happen at all, by the, by the way. I, I do believe what TIFF has suggested is that they, they are likely going to cut before the US is, and that yeah, would be bad for the Canadian to. dollar, but yeah. nonetheless, we are in a stickier situation. They were so lucky, they, they termed out all of their, their housing loans, they got 25, 30 year mortgages at two, two and a half, three 3%, and we have five year and mm-hmm. that's what keeps our banks strong. Yeah. And there's not. Right. Yep. This is the difference in, in our countries in many <clears> ways. Yeah. A bit of a obviously like cutting off your hand despite your rest of your body kind of thing analogy. But the the we're not. Well, we did talk about this. I want to say close to nine to 12 months ago, realistically talking about this, the glut of mortgages that were set to refinance and kind of this time frame and whatnot. And um you know the amount of information at that time obviously was all on the basis of well this is what would happen but we don't think interest rates were ever going to stay this high for that long and then it kept saying well maybe we are and then it got really scary and then it got obviously in the fall kind of early winter the rhetoric was i would say for the most part all economists were talking about well they're going to cut they're going to cut they're going to cut probably three or four times in 2024 and now <laughs> right over christmas and into january everyone's kind of taking a step back mm-hmm. in terms of how many cuts like oh well there's probably going to be cuts but it's not going to be until here or there 
at the end of the day, this information is not uh, exclusive to the Reform Millennials podcast. No, oh, and every like these, obviously, the highest of the high making these decisions are aware of this and have access to the data to understand what's really going to happen here. Uh, I'd hope, anyways. So, to your point, I I I don't think I'm I'm projecting it a doomsday scenario type thing, but you know at I the same comes- time, your the advice that you just gave, I would just echo it in saying that. I mean, I've started thinking about that too. It's like, here's like three scenarios, essentially. Like, here's where my rate is now. Obviously, considering everything else likely staying flat, but just looking at my, what's coming out twice a month for my mortgage. If my rate's one, two, or three, what is it going to look like? And what does that mean for from our spending perspective? So, Go ask your boss for a raise. Yeah, I can't ask. So I'm going to email to myself. I, <laughs> yeah. um, I, I do think, though, what ends up happening is you have a bank situation where they will be like okay i know the prevail they'll take the hit Mm -hmm. and be and be like okay we need we want to acquire these customers for long term Mm -hmm. um there's money to be made here um maybe on the tail end Mm -hmm. we're gonna lock you in but you got to do a seven-year mortgage at four yep because you can afford that yep but you can't afford five or five Mm -hmm. two and there's going to be a product built for that yeah and if it's private equity that comes in and does it or, or what, there's money that will want that duration at that rate, because right now you can't get that in U- Canadian um, treasur- treasuries, but Canadian bonds, yeah. you can't get it for free. You can do it on a six month and a nine month and a one year basis where you're gonna get five, but you yeah. can't get seven years at four and a half. Yeah. If, you, if you're trying to get a GIC for seven years, it is not even close to that. So mm-hmm. there, there is, there is some space for products to be built here and I believe it will come that is what capitalism does best and it likely will find a solution provided. oh yeah, yeah for sure so um, that's just my my take economically at the moment yeah. it feels like we've run a lot and when you start to um, at least in my opinion really s- I don't know look at the the bare bones of the market you have a, it's it's trading pretty expensive you have a market that's run 20% over four months, you've, you've seen, I don't know, an increase in, in geopolitical risk, mm-hmm. and you have a unknown two lame duck presidential race in the US yeah. that I think is honestly, it's contributing to the market doing well because both of these people are bringing nothing to the table. <laughs> So you have what's I think a lot of people are now concluding is that you have two lame ducks. It's looking like Trump's going to win, but the economy's so darn hot that it's going to be tough not to vote for Biden. And what else is he going to do? So it, it feels as though the market's happy with that. It's almost as though nothing's going to happen, and that will end up being a bonus. So I don't know areas of interest for me mm-hmm. right now. I, I, I'm looking at commercial real estate in the United in Canada. Mm-hmm. It's been beat up real bad. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, we're still growing at an absurd pace. Mm-hmm. People need housing. They need a place to build their businesses. And in my opinion, there's a lot of Twitter accounts that are, are very good at making people feel as though there's a collapse coming in Canada. Mm-hmm. There's this guy named Table Salt. And then there's another guy. Uh, he's a mortgage broker in Toronto. Okay. He blocked me because nice. I keep on, I keep subtweeting them, being like, or it's not that bad. But they they basically try to 
inflame people and and make them feel as though oh my goodness things are going to come to an end they're like oh my that's five percent that sells so. of course it does that's how you get engagement right that's how you sell more mortgages in my opinion uh canada itself is in a position where they've reshored up their demographic problem we had for a good decade and a half if you've been listening to Peter Zion at all. Yeah. He had talked about can the Canadian um, demographic problem. The United States had a fantastic distribution of age. Canada didn't. So while we have immigrated a ton of people, we're, I think they're just trying to find their footing right now. I mean, when you immigrate that many people who need to then find jobs, start businesses, and, and, and buy homes, it, it creates a bubble in one area, but then hasn't satisfied another. Mm -hmm. So I'm very optimistic with the the amount, the type of people that we bring in are, are very qualified. They aren't bums. They're educated, they're young, and they're entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know, I can't remember the percentage statistics, but it's my understanding that immigrants start like significantly more businesses than people that are second and third generation Canadians. And 100%. that is all great for our economy, but let them, they're spinning their wheels right now, let them get some traction here. and. That will then lend itself to seeing productivity growth, GDP growth, and see more innovation across Canada. We're already seeing it in Alberta, and I believe that'll start to be distributed yeah. across the rest of the, the the rest of the country. And then that will benefit our real estate market that has been beaten up. Yeah, we'll, we won't talk about the the uh, need for more housing again. No, 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 we don't need to beat that. Horse. Let's assume that that all just works itself out. Yeah, um, yeah I, I would agree. I, I think commercial real estate is an interesting space. I, I did listen to a couple industry experts actually the other week, funny that you bring it up, talking about the Alberta um, economy specifically from that facet. And we talked about, you know, last six months, we know a bunch of people too, for sure, where there's been this kind of not mass exodus, but there has been an exodus of people from Toronto and Vancouver centers to Alberta. And most specifically, you know, obviously talking to some of our, our friends down in Calgary and then um, just hearing from obviously these types of people saying that it's most of that exodus, if, you, if you're going to split it up into 100 people that have come into to Alberta, I think it's close to maybe, you know, 60 to 65 of those people would have moved to Calgary, maybe even higher. And then, you know, the remaining amounts kind of circulated mostly around Edmonton. And so I think there's a lot of pressure probably on like, let's just think about it from like a residential development standpoint. I think the cost of building some of the homes, obviously in Alberta, I, I would think if you were to ask someone who builds homes in both centers, they would say it's going to cost the same more or less to build in both places. But can probably get a better penny for building that home in Calgary, given the current demand and the amount of people coming into, into Calgary to find new homes and to start new businesses and whatever. So I think in the short term, um, and it made a lot of sense with the way it was described to me, um, is that, you know, the investment in, in Alberta anyways, a lot of it's the money's going to flow to Calgary mm -hmm. at this current time. But then there's going to become that, that inflection point, that tipping point where it's like, well, it's just, we can get the same home in Edmonton. I can start my business in Edmonton. I can live in Edmonton. Yeah. Okay, maybe I'm you know three extra hours away from the Banff trip or whatever that I really wanted. It was cool to see mountains for the first time after being out oh, east. I have to hear about our friend going to the mountains again. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It becomes that decision point where it's like, well, I can get the same home in Edmonton or build the same home in Edmonton for 
like 50% cheaper, 70% cheaper. Yeah. It's like, well, and that, that decision is going to be made. It's a big deal. And right? you know what? I work with a number of real estate agents uh, as clients, and they're saying exactly that, that they're oh, no. starting to get Canadian or <laughs> Calgarians move up yeah. here. I mean, yeah. even if I'm, I'm, there's a Facebook group that I'm a part of that is uh, like 35,000 physicians. Mm-hmm. And they talk about affordability and where they are moving their specialized practice to. And there's a number of people moving from the United States and from Ontario to Edmonton. Mm. And I don't know how many listeners have been to other hospitals in other provinces or even gone and used the infrastructure in other provinces. Mm-hmm. Alberta's knocks the socks off of every other province by a mile. Yeah. So it makes a lot of sense. We get a lot of flack for our political leanings. However, the infrastructure and services that we get for the taxes that we pay is unmatched. It's not even remotely close. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm always bullish at Edmonton, but that's just because it's well, and I think just, but then just to take that more macro, I mean, even some of the discussion across Canada is obviously there's, I mean, commercial real estate wise, overall blanket comment, I think is like, obviously there's a lot of space, like there's a lot of unused space in certain areas. There's a lot of questions around repurposing, obviously with this housing crisis, or we like, I mean, we've, we've seen examples even here in Edmonton of, of certain city plans that we had originally heard of being commercial space, building, whatever, and then it's turned into multi-use or it's being converted fully into residential or whatever it might be from a, like a plan perspective out for two or three years. So I think there's a lot of that uncertainty and a lot of things to be worked out there. Um, and obviously from a investor perspective, either like private equity or institutional for that matter. Um, we need more of that here. Institutional's probably gonna be a little bit more hung up and on the sidelines in relation to that. I think private equity maybe obviously getting a better multiple or whatever it might be and on lending out that cash. Let's be bullish and assume that's that's gonna be made and those investments are gonna be made because we need it. We need it to be made. And I, I think a lot of it is going to have to be in the you know, residential space or multi-use space. But on the commercial side, it's like, you know, once you get the people in, what do those people need? Not everyone needs a, not everyone's starting a company obviously and no. needs space, but there's going to be an influx of that requirement too. So I would, I would tend to agree with your thoughts there. Obviously yeah. not, you know, we're not talking about like a six to 12 month outlook here, but we're looking like long. Yeah. Five, 10 years. Yeah. And I mean, I, I just, I, I view so many huge tailwinds for us. You have the pipeline that's going to be in commissioned this year. You have a lot of opportunity in this province and it's not going away anytime mm-hmm. soon. Cam, you are a Lewis Hamilton stan. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the seven-time Formula One champion mm-hmm. moving from Mercedes to Ferrari? <laughs> one year out, too. Yeah. I yeah, can't it. believe he did that. So for those, yeah, don't follow F1. I mean, they, they usually call it, um, usually in the middle of the season, some of these decisions are made. So they call it like silly season, kind of like at the halfway break of the year. And that's when drivers and teams are looking at signing their drivers for the next year, like confirming what their driver lineup's going to be for the following year. So then you have these weird situations where you have a driver that's on Mercedes, but he's signed for Ferrari for the next year. But that's like the last like six races or seven races or whatever of the year sometimes. And it's usually known at that time. It's like, well, this guy's out of it or, you know, there's already a relationship fracture potentially. This is like, I mean, Lewis and Mercedes are synonymous with each other. Like, I mean, he's actually had a part in Mercedes at some point or the other since he was like 13 years old, drove for McLaren when he first started in F1, but, and then has been with Mercedes for 
10 years or whatever it is now, nine years uh, at the F1 level and with kind of the same team, like in terms of the group of people, et cetera. So he was viewed as that, you know, that the equivalent of whatever sport you want to pick, like the lifetime, the lifetimer in Mercedes, like he'll grind to the sunset and finish his career and try and win, so try and win one more to get past Michael Schumacher for most F1 titles so ever is, won. Is Sainz going to the to Mercedes? No, he isn't committed yet. So that's the thing. So like right now, again, I'll, just to set the table a little bit. So Ferrari's heading into the 24 season here with a lineup of Charles Leclerc, who's signed to like 27 or 28, and then Carlos signs, whose contract ends at the end of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, they've just, Lewis also contract to the end of this year, there was an option or whatever. He's now signed with Ferrari, but not but for the 25 season. So the, this entire season, Carlos Sainz knows he's not driving in this car the next year, and Lewis knows that he's not driving in Mercedes. He's going to be with Ferrari, which is just the weirdest dynamic to it's think so about, weird. right? It's like obviously equivalent. Don't um, even go with the option that. Our no, I was saying like Austin Matthews saying I'm going to sign in Arizona yeah. next July, but I'll play this year for Toronto. So Can it's you like imagine. I mean, just like People what throw stuff at him every game. Exactly. Like it would never go by in any of our quote unquote normal big four or five sports in North America. So now obviously both drivers have come out and like Carlos, you know, obviously you're going to say I'm going to drive my best. Now he's fighting for a job and probably wants to get a seat at one of the big like Adam Mercedes, for example, like he'll yeah. be like, there'll be guys at the lower level teams that are fighting that really want to get that spot. Cause like they have this weird, like the like Ferrari, for example, their engines, they and a lot of their mechanical stuff go into other teams' cars as well. So like Alfa Romeo, mm. uh, they're not called Alfa Romeo anymore, I don't think. But anyways, they, like there's shared technology. Te- technology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Mercedes would kind of have like a feeder system already with like teams and drivers that they'd probably like have their eyes on. But of course, like, I mean, a guy like Signs, who's showed to be able to drive in these high performing cars with the top teams it's like okay well now that guy's available so we're gonna have a competition essentially to see how you drive this year so like you're fighting for your next job at another team which is just it's just a weird dynamic so it'll be this is kind of you know we said f1 was very stale last year given the fact that it was a runaway for verstappen and there wasn't really that same level of competition at the higher end um just because i mean ultimately too we've I've said this before, you've, you've now brought in all of these North American fans and these, let's call it non-lifer fans, like new fans into F1. You need to have competition in order to keep that traction going so and you need to have more news car, stories. I don't care what anyone says. <laughs> well, so, and then, yeah, we're, we're getting into obviously like testing and, you know, they have their second crack at this new age car, all these teams, which Red Bull obviously knocked out of the water last year. We'll see what happens with with you know McLaren made big steps, Mercedes made big steps, Ferrari made big steps kind of throughout the year. Mm-hmm. So hopefully it'll be more competitive. And then obviously seeing this, like I'll talk about from just Lewis Hamilton's standpoint or seeing his legacy. Like, I mean, ask me five years ago when I was at the F1 race and watched Lewis win, I was just like chirping Ferrari fans left, right, and center. And it's like, cause Ferrari's kind of looked at like the, as like the, the death star kind of mm-hmm. thing. Like, um, just because of Michael Schumacher, what he represented, and just they've always had those drivers. Like they were very dominant for a very long time, so everyone hated them. Driver. They do now. I wouldn't say like I think they would have a hated driver in the past. Always. Uh, who's that? Who's the Brazilian driver that died in the car? He was like beloved. He was uh, a super. He gave back to the community. Uh, yeah, but it's just like when, when you're a fan name? of a team. Um, I actually don't know who you're talking about. This Aiton, maybe. Or Santa? Yeah. 
So I don't um, I'm not sure if he was Ferrari or not, but anyways, uh, I should know more because being an F1 purist, but the, I think ultimately what this is showing is Lewis believes in that car. Ferrari believes in obviously the uh, marketing power of having two of the top four drivers, at least like record, like you have kind of the young breakout star in, in Charles and, and then Lewis, you know, arguably the best driver ever. So that's going to be really interesting to see that dynamic and having that like true, like there will not be a number one driver on that team. Like usually there's number one driver, number two driver in terms of where resources go and, and whatnot. I think that'll be a true competition on that team and which they're probably hoping means good thing for the team as a whole, like what Ferrari represents. Um, but it is like, the, it's probably the most iconic F1, like historical F1 team. And I'm assuming there was a lot of allure for that for Lewis. So I'll long story short, I'll be buying a red hat for sure. You will be with number 44 on yeah. it. So it'll be great. Ayrton drove for McLaren, Honda and Williams Renault. So I was wrong. You were right. Boom. Either way. Um, but they just have this, they have, they have this evil empire allure to them because it was largely based off like Schumacher won everything for so many years yeah. and it was Ferrari who was, and they weren't exactly like humble with everything either. Well, no. So, and why would you be? But so that's They're what Italian. made, that's been. what made everybody else not like that. And I would say their struggles over the past three, four well or five years is like, oh, that's great. But now having at the end of the day for F1, what they need is high level competition at the top end mm -hmm. they need the top three or four guys they need to have a true battle for the for the I, for both the constructors for the team championship and for the overall drivers that's what they need and as much as like max might there there's going to be enough of a level playing field in my mind where if max continues to dominate then he's just solidifying the fact that he's that much better than everybody else mm -hmm. which he has proven like i mean i do not like this guy I think he's like the worst personality too, in terms of like marketing the sport, but he is an unbelievable talent. And if you have to still, even if you might, you're gonna lose maybe some people if it's truly like him running away with it all the time, yeah. but you like still me. have to respect greatness. And Americans at the same love time. greatness. They do. I mean, like, I mean, everyone always used to, we talked about this, like LeBron, LeBron going to nine and Curry. Finals. It's like people still, like they had record ratings. It's all good. Like people love watching okay. greatness too, so. So I got some recommendations. Mm -hmm. um, the Madhavan Ramanujan okay. interview on Invest Like the Best. It was a replay. Yeah. And it talks about how to price products. And for anybody mm -hmm. building any business, whether it be restaurants, my business, your business, um, you're building hardware, or you're even looking to consider either doing a franchise business or you're starting a, a grocery outlet or you're building a gas station, mm -hmm. his how to price products book mm -hmm. but more importantly this podcast to kind of get you into it was phenomenal like to, the way to think about um benefits to the customer how you sell it to them and more importantly how you push certain things and justify your price he, he effectively says it's not product mar market fit it's price of the product market fit mm. and if you don't find that there's no point and he said that the biggest issue with the, the 10 year period where we had unlimited ZERP money in technology products, the problem with where they're going and why these SaaS companies and Uber products were failing and flailing for so long is because they didn't have a price that people could accept yeah. or could justify. And they just went with, I'm going to scale to infinity and eventually we'll find the price that works. For some, it has worked for those that are still sticking around, but for a lot, 
it seemed as though they had something and they didn't, it's because they needed to find the price product market fit. And this podcast was, I don't know, it's 55 minutes long. It is well worth anybody's time if you want to get a good understanding for how great businesses like Apple justify their pricing models and um, think about how their products price relatively, not absolutely, but relatively in, in markets. And I think it's, it's, it was fascinating for me. I really, really enjoyed it. I can't believe it taken so long for me to listen to it, but I highly recommend it. You? Nothing. Uh, tax season started. Oh, uh, so um, I, I actually just want to repeat a recommendation, I guess, a little bit in, in terms of in terms of tax or filing obligations. I Again, if, if anyone out there listening has any kind of, to your knowledge, a bear trust agreement uh, in regards to land holdings or in regards to... So the, these types of arrangements are a lot more common than people think. So a, a great one that... Um, my partner of mine always alludes to is, you know, if you have an aging parent potentially and you're, you're in trust on a bank account of theirs in terms of helping with their finances or whatever it might be, you may have a reporting obligation for 2023 and beyond. So again, talk to your accountant, go through the rules. I'm not, I'm not going to go through everything today. This is just a FYI there are some relief provisions this first year of filing. So the, the filing due date is, is March 31st for all of these bear trust returns fall under normal trust returns. So like for like family trusts and, and whatnot as well. But there are, there is some extensions this year um, or some relief provisions on any interest and penalties in regards to the actual filing of the return. In most cases, in almost all of these cases, there is no tax liability associated with doing this. It's simply information return filing. I just can't stress enough that there's a lot of that stuff out there that unfortunately people are just not aware that there's this filing obligation. So again, for those listening, if you have, again, maybe own some land through a corporation or partnership, or if you're to have two people on title uh, on something, you know, have your parents co-sign um, for, a, for a house purchase, or if you're on, again, like on uh, bank accounts together with a um, elderly family member or whatever it might be, you might have a filing obligation, so please reach out to somebody and, and talk to them about it. Yeah, there's a bunch of people on BNN that were starting to bang the table on that. So yeah, it's it. yeah, it's like it's very obviously very relevant now that we're actually you know we're into February now, so we're you know essentially uh, call it 60 days from the from the filing deadline up front. Again, like I said, there is some relief provisions. We're going to find more of these things as we have continue to have conversations with clients, but. Um, Anyways, you can only send out so many email blasts and so many things like this to people um, where, you know, it's going to end up just coming. It's going to end up coming to fruition at some point. Yeah. But, um, yeah, have those conversations so you know if you have to file something. Not saying it's a great idea that we have to file. Don't get me on that tangent. But it's there nonetheless. So we want to avoid having any penalties. I would love to get you on that tangent if I could push <laughs> you. Um, well, Cam, talk to you next week. Sounds good.